Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. An introduction this is to my new podcast, Marooned. Also in the beginning here, an introduction, maybe a reintroduction to Swindled. ACC, a concerned citizen who creates the podcast Swindled, him and I started out at the same time back in late 2016. We were both preparing around that time, came out in 2017. And um, I just need to remind you about this podcast, Swindled, before I remind you about my new podcast, Marooned. Uh, that swindled is out there and it is one of the uh, most incredible podcasts that you can listen to that is still legitimately independent uh, in its own its own deal he's a he's a force to be reckoned with swindled is a true crime podcast about greed the anonymous host who refers to himself as a concerned citizen tells true stories of white-collar criminals, con artists, and corporate evil in a dark and deadpan narrative style that will leave you trusting nothing. There are episodes about the disturbing histories and practices of food giants such as Nestle and Chiquita. There are episodes about man-made environmental disasters such as the Bhopal gas tragedy and the BP oil spill. There's even a swindled episode about Mother Teresa. Nothing and no one is off-limits. Critics have called Swindled remarkable and enraging, horrifying and maddening, meticulously researched and true. For the love of money is the root of all evil. 100 plus episodes are waiting for you. Listen to Swindled at swindled.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello out there. This is an episode from my new podcast with Aaron Habel of Generation Y called Marooned. You've heard about it a few times, I'm sure, through me. Um, but I want to play a full episode for anybody who hasn't heard it yet. This is The Long Man, episode three of Marooned. If you've heard it, just, you know, check out now. Um, but if you haven't, please enjoy. And I'll be back soon with regular Dark Topic episodes. Uh, once my fucking jaw unlocks, it's cold out here. One more thing to mention is that I have uh, some people saying that they think I'm straying away from what I should be doing. You're wrong. What I should be doing is what I want to be doing. And Maroon is what I want to be doing. Dark Topic is what I want to be doing. Dead Bug episodes of Tales from the Bottom Down is what I want to be doing. Brutal, brutal, brutal is what I want to be doing. Everything I do is what I want to do. And uh, it gives me a break from other things and rejuvenates me for everything else each time I finish. So, you know, if you think that I'm just out here trying to uh, post episodes to gain ad revenue, uh, you're right. You're right. Um, and if you really got a problem with it, call the fucking cops. I hope you enjoy this episode. And please subscribe to Marooned. It's a new podcast. If you it's not Dark Topic. It's a new podcast. You need to subscribe to Marooned. It's free. Marooned. Subscribe. And I feel like I miss my brother there, Leroy Luna. I, I love recording with him, too. Subscribe to his podcast. Excuse me, that's illegal. 
All right, let's get on with it. Antarctica. A mysterious, unruly, frozen goatee on the chin of the planet. An area we dared not comb through until the face of the Earth was sufficiently covered. As the century turned from the 19th to the 20th, so did the age of who would become a legendary explorer and scientist in Douglas Mawson. A degree in engineering hit his hand in 1902, and the tall, athletic, young academic took off running as if that bachelor's were a baton. He quickly made a name for himself in the lucrative field of mining, and by 1907 was ready to set his icy blue stairs south. Not in pursuit of warm weather, no. Mawson, the Australian, sought the adventure and expedition to a widely uncharted Antarctica would provide. It's from here that Mawson began an improbable journey that would freeze and snap the will of most. Even if one were tough enough to survive, the ground underfoot was always a threat to drop out into an impossibly deep crevasse. In Sir Douglas Mawson's time, he would be instrumental in Australia claiming some 2,500,000 square miles of the Antarctic continent, a place that nearly claimed him in return. Welcome to Marooned, Stories of the Catastrophically Lost. I'm Jack Luna. This is Aaron Habel. Aaron, this is a gargantuan topic, and I'm thankful that you broke down much of the research for us. There are so many compelling side stories and overarching themes here, but we don't want to get too far off track. We want to travel with Mawson today. We absolutely do, and we will, Jack. I found the topic of Antarctica's early expeditions quite daunting as well. I'll give it my best shot when it comes to keeping the focus on Sir Douglas Mawson. Unlike many of his contemporaries, Mawson had little interest in discovering the South Pole. He would find himself on a failed expedition to locate it with the great Ernest Shackleton in 1907. Names like Asmundson, Shackleton, and Scott would continue to pursue this prize while Mawson decided his interest would lie in exploration as well as erecting radio masts. Mawson hoped to be the first to establish radio contact from Antarctica with the outside world, as well as work to discover anything the mysterious continent at the bottom of the Earth might reveal. His goal was to explore the geography, geology, and biology of the Antarctic region in the area between Camp Adair and Gaussberg, which lay directly south of Australia. This was to be a scientific mission. The first order of business was to raise the funds necessary, which amounted to what would be $15 million today. He did a lot of work preparing for this endeavor. This included acquiring a sailing vessel to make the trip. He settled on a ship built for whaling in 1876 and paid 6,000 pounds for it. With their ship secured, he had its new captain supervise a refit to make the ship suit the expedition's purposes better. That captain was John King Davis, who had captained the failed 1907 expedition to locate the South Pole. Though it's really tough to call any expedition of this sort of failure, much was always discovered and learned on every trip. The monoplane was part of Mawson's plan, but this plane crashed during a test flight on Australia. Mawson made use of what was left by having it modified to become a motor sledge, aka air tractor, to be used to move supplies around the main base of operations, Camp Denison. 
Yeah, and I, the feeling I get about Moss, and and thank you for all that. I mean, uh, again, like this is there's so much information here, and we're spilling it out as quickly or, or as, as efficiently as we possibly can. And you've done obviously a great job there. But what I want to say about Moss is that the feeling I get is that his passion lay less in stamping his name within history books, and more with revealing whatever secrets the frigid maw of the earth stubbornly held. The highly intelligent adventurer had been lecturing at the University of Adelaide, becoming a doctor of science by 1909, then engaged to the love of his life, Paquita Del Prat, in 1911, just before collecting a crew made up largely of his students, green young men, many who had never seen snow, let alone some of the harshest cold weather conditions, on Earth. They traveled in their repurposed whaling boat in 1911, heading straight south to an unexplored section that Aaron touched on there, Finding nothing but ice cliffs, they moved west until they discovered an inlet, which they named Commonwealth Bay, a spot that turned out to be the windiest area on Earth at sea level. Aaron, you seen uh, some of the footage of all this and pictures that they took of when they first showed up there, how nasty it was for them? Oh, and even reading the accounts, because many of these explorers that went to Antarctica kept journals, they kept diaries. And reading about how winds could pick up between 50 to 200 miles per hour, it's unreal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they would do something called wind walking. There's one particular photo where, um, I'm not sure if it's Mawson or not, but he's he's at a, an impossible angle, like doing uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> he's almost touching the ground, and it's the wind holding him up. Uh, he What he was doing, he's out there trying to chip out ice so that they could boil it for water in that particular picture. And speaking of these pictures, there was a photographer that they brought along on the trip so that we have a lot of photos when times were fun here at the start, not so many when things get rough going on. There was guys, so we mentioned how they'd never been in cold weather conditions. When they got there, they're like uh, pushing penguins off ice shelves and stuff for fun, which sounds kind of mean, but I mean, penguins are used to the water, right? So <laughs> it was kind of a strange thing they were doing, but they were just well, kind the of having fun. sounds kind of mean because you're, you're having fun at this penguin's expense, but I'm sure the penguins were fine. Yeah, me too, man. This photographer that came along on this uh, particular expedition, his mother got a hold of Mawson and said, my son is not built for this. Please don't take him along with you. He's sick. He's weak. And when Mawson talked to the photographer, he's like, oh, don't listen to my mom, dude. I, she just doesn't want me to go out there and die. I'm fine. And uh, it's it's awesome that he did come along because we have some amazing pictures as a result. Like um, the, the when they went out to just go check things out, sometimes their faces would be covered in ice afterwards. Did you see any of those photos? Oh, yeah. It definitely, it looked like uh, someone had hit them with a good-sized snow or ice ball just <laughs> yeah. before the picture was taken. That's wild, man. That's wild. But going back to that mother, she was smart because a lot of people ended up going out there and dying. I mean, Robert Scott, one of the explorers we mentioned, he died uh, mm -hmm. during the time that we're talking about. And if you read through his journal entries, it was hard. He knew he was near his end, but mm -hmm. I mean, credit to these guys that they were so determined that even the threat of death wasn't enough to keep them home. You're right. 
And uh, before you continue here, there's something I want to clean up from the last episode. So people would, I could say something like, um, there's plenty of expeditions and plenty of people die anywhere else in the world they have historically. Here's the thing. When it came to moral prosperity, I made mention, or you did, I'm not sure which one of us did, that um, a lot of people run marathons. And in the New York City Marathon, so many people died over a certain period of time as well. So it's like marathons in general are just dangerous. Here's the thing that I missed in my research and in my writing there. It's that there's so many more people running a New York City Marathon or, you know, than we're running through that desert. So the odds of dying were much higher. And the odds of dying on an expedition such as this are exponentially higher as well because of all the pitfalls. To keep the crew warm in the frigid climate of Antarctica, all clothing and accessories were made of wool and fur. Now, of course, you have people designing these things who don't really know what they're doing. They're just thinking, we need to keep you warm. I know this will do the job. So typically, these clothes, they're tight against the body, which causes excessive sweating and isn't comfortable. It will wear on you. It'll cause friction. Footwear wasn't any better as they didn't provide much in the way of insulation. Blankets, clothing, sleeping bags, or any other woolen items could get wet or sweaty, then freeze, which would reduce their usefulness. These early explorers, especially in 1911, endured and risked a lot to undertake these expeditions. In March of 1912, Mawson and his party arrived in Commonwealth Bay, 2,670 kilometers south of Hobart. The 18 men spent the autumn and winter building the main base, which is essentially a hut and a number of small outbuildings at Cape Denison, conducting research and preparing for land expeditions in the summer. Mawson's plan required the establishment of three bases, a radio relay station at Macquarie Island so that a wireless telegraph could be used for communications, a main base at Commonwealth Bay, and another base 2,000 kilometers west on the Shackleton Ice Shelf. And now I feel as, pardon the pun again, slipping into much of the fascinating yet tedious detail of such an expedition, Aaron. What drew us both to this story was the incredible undertaking, of course, but also the danger. Mawson's crew is made up mostly of men accustomed to warm weather, and now they're in the most foreign conditions possible to them. Aaron, have you seen their base? Did you see their base camp there? Oh, yeah, I definitely have. They, the amazing thing is, is these camps ended up being preserved over time, some of them, because, well, they're history. And you can see footage, you can see pictures from back then. But even today, some of these buildings can be visited by tourists. Right. And they would build up their little cabin and then the snow would fill in and they were kind of buried in there. And there's photos of um, them having to open a hatch in the roof of their cabin Aaron, you and I were having a conversation before we started here about, obviously, it's super cold out there. It's as cold as it could possibly be. And these men all together in this cabin would have really warmed that situation up. It must have been, it must have been so extreme how cold you can get when you get outside, but how hot it would get inside. They probably had to open up the roof and ventilate it, right? Yeah, it has a lot to do with trying to keep these buildings warm. And so imagine lining the insides of that building with material to trap in the heat, but then you have 25 men inside that <laughs> building 
it starts to really heat up. So the outside weather could be 77 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. or it could be 40 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, it right. just depended on the month, the day. And so if you're trying to find security and comfort inside this building, you might end up so hot, you can't wait to get back outside. So it's this constant battle of trying to find some level of comfort in a world essentially that isn't made to be comfortable. Uh, absolutely. And can you imagine like um, the cabin fever? I mean, even though you're surrounded by all these men, you might kind of go nutty with how, how close the quarters are. You just want to get outside to get some alone time as well. <clears throat> and an interesting thing that I don't have the information on, but like going to the bathroom, right? It's not like they have plumbing there. So I'm assuming they would go outside to handle their business. I don't think they would be doing it in, in there. And to go further with my interest in the idea of going to the washroom uh, in Antarctica <laughs> is that today the um, scientists and all that who are there, there's, I think there's 36 bases out there, all different countries involved and doing research on Antarctica because it's kind of a barometer for how the world is doing when it comes to climate change and such. They won't even urinate outside, Aaron. Did you see any of that? Like they, they pee into um, jugs and they have uh, a treatment center there where they collect all their waste and then they pack it into bags and then they take it with them when they fly out. I know it's a little bit off topic, but did you catch any of that? Well, I think a lot of the scientists, if not all of them, that go out there for exploration or for scientific expeditions, what they do is they're trying to respect that part of the world. I mean, it, it had been untouched by man and now it's being touched all the time. And I think they're just trying to preserve what's there and keep it pure as much as they can. Yeah. Some people might think that that's silly, but no, it's a mindset. It's a respect thing. You know, it's just like not swearing at your grandma's house. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't pee on Antarctica, you know, leave it alone. Save that for the woods. Mawson's exploration program was carried out by five parties from the main base and two from the western base. Mawson led a three-man sledging team, the so-called Far Eastern Party, set to survey glaciers on the coastline and collect geologic samples. A round trip of 1,500 kilometers. It's almost a thousand miles. The imposing 30-year-old Douglas Mawson, leader and prime decision-maker of the coming explorations, selects the most difficult assignment one that would require traveling the furthest distance while carrying the heaviest load, not to mention traversing the most dangerous ground. Yeah, Mawson was described by one newspaper as a tall, strong, and possibly handsome gentleman. Uh, I'll settle on bright, icy-eyed, and dashing, uh, not to mention tremendously brave. All these men were tremendously brave, but Mawson was um, outstandingly so, apparently. All who knew Mawson would say he was fearless, and besides being well-suited for the challenges of Antarctic exploration in a physical and academic sense, he was also a natural leader. One of the boys, as they say. Mawson, as his pick of the men he'll take with him, he first chooses 28-year-old Xavier Mertz, a Swiss lawyer, ski jump champion, the only member of the party who knew how to ski, in fact. Yeah, the thing with uh, Mertz, sorry to cut in in here, here, Aaron, but uh, that picture that was taken of somebody coming out of the top of their shelter, that's Mertz. 
And if anybody wants to take a look at it, there's sources in the show notes of somebody coming out and, and they're stepping out. That's Xavier Mertz coming out. Um, he was the most athletic of the group and a constant source of amusement for the other men with his Swedish accent and comically high spirits. He was a character. And Mawson would trust Mertz to lead them over dangerous terrain because of his ability to um, to ski, right? He would get ahead, and we'll get into some of that, but uh, he would kind of lead the way. He would study for crevasses while Mawson and a third companion would worry about the dogs and their sledges carrying food and supplies. Yeah. Enter Belgrave Ninnis. He was a 26-year-old British soldier nicknamed Cherub for his youthful look. I mean, he... <laughs> If you look at pictures of Ninnis, he looks like a kid. And yeah. yet he was within four or five years of Mertz. Ninnis was the expedition's lead dog handler. Sled dogs were relied upon heavily, so having Ninnis along would seem to assure Mawson's trio strength in that sense. Yeah, amazing that besides being a scientist or simply brave enough for the adventure, back then you had to be a competent dog handler. Moss and he mushed a sled or sledge with his own team of dogs, but having Ninnis Cherub as an expert for dogs along would open up Moss into the true purpose here, scientific exploration of a vast, widely undiscovered frozen hellscape. To paint a picture of what his team would look like, Mawson gave an account of it, quote, Behind the forerunner came a team of dogs dragging two sledges joined together by a short length of alpine rope. Bringing up the rear were the rest of the dogs dragging the third sledge. Each team pulled approximately equal weights, the front load being divided between two sledges. Except when taking my turn ahead, I looked after the leading team, Ninnis or Mertz, as the case might be, driving the one behind. End quote. So Mertz would most often lead on his skis, like I talked about, if they were trekking a particularly dangerous section of the unknown like a glacier with crevasses covered in snow, eyes peeled for danger. Mawson would mush a sled and help provide direction for Mertz. Then Ninnis would bring up the rear. Ninnis's sledge held the most valuable load and was pulled by the best of their dogs, thought being that if anyone were to drop into a crevasse, it would likely be one of the first two, and the most valuable load would be saved. I think the thought here too is that Cherub, as they call him, they were kind of protective over him and he, he was the youngest. Um, he'd be in the back, Aaron. Yeah, that was definitely the idea here. We'll find out as time goes on whether this was the correct path to take. <laughs> right. November 10th, 1912. It's time to go. Before the parties head out, some men collected penguin eggs, which Mertz used to make omelets. This was a favorite meal among the crew and helped them to feel more prepared for the tough work ahead. And out there, this was a delicacy, really. Mm -hmm. Ninnis oversaw mm -hmm. the dogs being connected to the sleds, and when it was time to go, all parties wished each other safe travels, then were off into their individual unknowns, an abyss of wind and ice and snow. Mawson would write in his journals that the first 300 miles were a mad dash. They had little issue, save some concern about Ninnis's vision. Here's what Mawson wrote about this in his book, The Home of the Blizzard. Quote, Ninnis had a touch of snow blindness, which rapidly improved under treatment. The stock cure for this very irritating and painful affection is to place tiny tabloids of zinc sulfate and cocaine hydrochloride under the eyelids where they quickly dissolve in the tears, alleviating the smarting, gritty sensation, which is usually described by the sufferer. 
He then bandages the eyes and escapes, if he is lucky, into the darkness of his sleeping bag. Crazy, man. They're dealing with so much here. On December 14th, the party was crossing the Ninnis Glacier, later named for their dog expert here in Ninnis, the youngest cherub. And they're around uh, 480 kilometers east of the main base at this point. The journey had been difficult with many close calls, mostly from sleds falling partly through crevasses, which is terrifying. They, they say this stuff so casually, Aaron. Partly falling through crevasse. What, a crevasse that is, is 300 feet deep? My God. And we must remember that these men are traveling over land that is virgin to human footsteps. And this isn't what some might imagine. This isn't a dog sledding team coasting over flat, frozen tundra. Picture endless mountains of ice covered in snow, filled with pitfalls, crevasses. Over there in the distance, if you can imagine with me, you might look across frigid black waters that seals are slipping into, and uh, from where humpback whales might be moaning occasionally into the frosty air, I imagine. There might be an active volcano, Aaron, somewhere in the distance, pumping out steam. It's truly wild territory. It might as well be another planet to these gentlemen. And strange things are happening. The men, they're superstitious. They can't help but be. One of the huskies had birthed babies in the night and then eaten them, which isn't entirely unusual for um, a dog to do at this time. It's wild that they didn't know that the dog was pregnant and that the dog could hang in there and run and then and then just birth babies and eat them. Um, my understanding of that is that the babies were malnutritioned and small in the belly because of all of the running that the dog was doing. And then once she birthed them, she just ate them. And, but they saw this as a bad sign. Um, a petrel, which is a type of seabird, it's actually known as a water witch. And it's thought to be a harbinger of storms incoming. A petrel had smashed into Ninnis's sled out of nowhere. Mertz, the Swedish skier at the front of their, their trek, Mertz couldn't get past this. Like, where had it come from? Where did this bird come from? He was supposed to be the one looking out for this stuff. It just came out of nowhere. And why was there only one? Yeah, they're getting pretty spooked, Jack. And another thing that would happen is while they're out there on this trek, they hear weird noises. And I guess Mawson believed it was the sound of arches of snow and ice just giving way because yeah. the air had warmed a little bit. So as the temperature changed, structures would change. So they would hear wow. collapsing structures just across this frozen <sighs> wasteland. Scary. Mawson and Mertz lead the way across a glacier that their dog handler, Ninnis, will soon be named after. Mawson was on his sled, pulled by half their huskies, and Mertz was skiing ahead, poking the snow and eyeing the way for danger. And as he does this, he'll hold up a ski pole once in a while to let them know if something's going on. Mm -hmm. On a lighter note, Mertz is singing his Swiss songs of folklore to keep spirits up as they traverse what felt like a particularly dangerous patch. Ninnis was jogging beside the second sled, bringing up the rear. He often would run alongside the dogs rather than ride the skis of his sledge. And that's when the lighter note goes flat there, Aaron. Mertz at the front there, he stops skiing, raises his pole like he said, he senses they are crossing what's known as a snow bridge, a treacherous section where a crevasse may lay beneath and the snow has built a bridge over top over time. And they must tread lightly so as not to plunge through. Some crevasses can run miles deep, 
And to fall into one is the stuff of nightmares, Aaron. The threat alone should have these men constantly in a state of terror. But they know it does no good to obsess on the fact that at times like this, they are basically walking a tightrope over a canyon. One with fissures that lead to some icy hell from which they'll never be retrieved. Ninnis, cherub at the back, who should be the safest, suddenly falls through the snow into a 50-meter crevasse. Six dogs, most of the party's rations, their three-man tent, and other essential supplies go with them. Mertz, who is best friends with Ninnis, by the way, senses it happen and turns to catch a glimpse of the horror. Mawson knows it's bad when Mertz stops singing. He had only heard one of the dogs make a whining sound behind him. Mertz and Mawson hurry over to an 11-foot-wide opening in the snow bridge and peer down. They spot two dogs on a ledge 165 feet or so below them. One is clearly dead, and one is gravely injured. Nearby is the tent. There is no sign of Ninnis. The two men had no means of descending into the crevasse, as the rope they had left would not reach far enough. They call out the name Ninnis for hours, effectively naming this glacier. It was a tough blow. Mertz had helped to guide them so as to avoid hitting crevasses, but they hit one anyway. Mertz wrote about the situation in his journal. Quote, We could do nothing, really nothing. We were standing, helplessly, next to a friend's grave, my best friend of the whole expedition. We read a prayer in Mawson's prayer book. This was our only consolation, the last honoring we could do for our beloved friend Ninnis. After this brief prayer, Mawson and Mertz decided on immediately heading back to base. They had one week's provisions for two men and no dog food, but they still had a few dogs and a Primus stove with plenty of fuel for it. They sledged for 27 hours to obtain a spare tent cover they had left behind, for which they improvised a tent frame from skis and a theodolite instrument used for land surveying. Due to most of their supplies having been lost, they had to use the remaining sled dogs to feed the other dogs and themselves. They selected dogs who dropped from exhaustion. And I have to make a note here because these men, they valued these dogs very highly. They were important. Just keep in mind, traversing this hellish landscape would be worse, way worse, if they didn't have sled dogs. So yeah. you might wonder, like, why are they eating the dogs? They, they are doing what they have to do to survive, but they're not doing this lightly. I'm glad you made that note there. Um, I've been reading a lot of Jack London uh, all the time. I, Jack London is probably my favorite author. I find him to be the uh, the most relatable, I guess, or the most coherent from from that time uh, for me to read. I, if I read Charles Dickens or something like that, I feel like kind of struggle because of the language used and all that. When I read Jack London books, he's talking about adventure and just talking about his experiences, and it's very clear to me and it's very true. And um, in the book. The Call of the Wild, or in White Fang, he speaks obviously very fondly about his dogs. He even writes from the perspective of a dog. And um, if you ever want to get a real idea of how this type of man would feel about their dogs, read any Jack London book that includes dogs. But Aaron, I have a quote from Mawson on this situation. Quote, their meat was stringy, tough, and without a vestige of fat. For a change, we sometimes chopped it up finely, 
mixed it with dried meat and berries, bringing it to a boil in a large pot of water, end quote. That said, there wasn't really enough food to satisfy the two men and the remaining dogs. Only a few ounces was used of the stock of ordinary food, to which was added a portion of dog's meat, and the major part was fed to the surviving dogs. Nothing was wasted. Eventually, the two men and one dog were all that remained, all three pulling the sled with minimal gear on it to lighten the load and increase their chances of returning to base. The expedition had taken a toll. The two men suffered dizziness, nausea, irrationality, ulcers, as well as hair, skin, and nail loss. Mertz was worse off than Mawson as he seemed to lose the will to move at one point and asked to be left in his sleeping bag. His mental state deteriorated to madness and he suffered from diarrhea. Mawson spent probably a couple hours cleaning him up after an incident. According to Mawson, Mertz refused to believe he was suffering from frostbite and bit off the tip of his own little finger while attempting to disprove Mawson. This sent him further into madness, and Mawson had to sit on his companion's chest and pin down his arms to prevent him from destroying their tent. Mertz experienced more seizures before falling into a coma and dying on January 8, 1913. Yeah, Aaron, he'd eaten too much dog liver. With six dogs between them, and a liver on average weighing one kilogram, it is thought that the pair ingested enough liver to bring on a condition known as hypervitaminosis A, experienced when humans ingest excessive amounts of vitamin A. However, Mertz may have suffered more because he found the tough muscle tissue difficult to eat and therefore ate more of the soft liver than Mawson did. This is a kind of a testament to how great of a leader Mawson was, how tough he was. You got to know that Mawson's not enjoying eating the tough dog meat as well, but he acquiesces to to the needs of his partner here and says, hey, eat more of that. If you enjoy that more, I'll, I'll eat less of it, though it doesn't play into Mertz's favor. It was unknown at the time that husky liver contains extremely high levels of vitamin A and that high levels of the vitamin could harm people. Some animals who live in such frigid climates do not experience this issue, but human beings do. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature, built-in true accent, gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today
All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlands Food. After the death of Mertz, Mawson continued the final 160 kilometers alone. On his way to the main base, he fell through and into a crevasse, but was somehow saved by his sledge. It had wedged itself into the ice above him. The 14-foot-long harness used to attach him to the sled saved him. Mawson considered undoing his harness as the toll of the ordeal weighed on him. Now, right before I go on, I have to say... His soles, the soles of his feet had come off and were replaced by blisters. So he's walking in the worst condition imaginable. Not only is it freezing outside, not only is he not really protected from the elements the way we would be today if we went and visited, we could get the proper parkas and, and gear. 
but he's doing this with his body wanting to give out. The only thing keeping him going is his willpower and, of course, a picture of his betrothed. So Mawson considered undoing his harness. Below is a black chasm. A word from Douglas Mawson on his predicament here. Exhausted, weak, and chilled, for my hands were bare and pounds of snow had got inside my clothing, I hung with the firm conviction that all was over except the passing. It would be but the work of a moment to slip from the harness, then all the pain and toil would be over. But in this moment, a poem by Robert Service titled The Quitter suddenly came to Mawson's mind. Just have one more try. It's dead easy to die. It's the keeping on living that's hard. Amazing. Different different types of people here, man. Uh, extremely tough. Luckily, one of the men had tied knots in the harness and in, in, in the rope there. Otherwise, Mawson would have had no chance in this predicament. It helped that he was tough as hell, and by this point, weighed little. Mawson makes a few attempts in vain to pull himself up, but eventually he succeeds by using an inverted maneuver where he pushes his legs up and out of the hole he had plunged through and onto firmer ground, which is not easy. I mean, he makes it sound easy in his writings. It's not. He flips himself upside down and starts to climb up that way. His arms and legs shake from the exertion, but it somehow works to go legs first, and he drags himself out with his feet. The slow, deliberate climb exhausted whatever energy he had left, and Mawson passes out for an hour, his face slashed by the wind and eaten by frostbite. Boils begin to grow on his neck. Soon, he wakes like a rusted relic in a mortal machine booted to life and sets off again determined to make it back or to at the very least make it to a waypoint a shelter where he could die holding his journal and the story of what happened out here that's um reminiscent of our last episode with uh moral prosperity and he he wanted to find a spot because they did have little little shelters along the way that they would set up for themselves and they were far and few between but if he were to die like prosperity he wanted to die in a place where he wouldn't be covered in snow and lost forever, right? On January 29th, 1913, Mawson stumbled upon a stash of supplies with a note on it. The supplies were left by one of the parties who had went in search of his party. The note indicated that the stash had been left just hours before and that his ship, the Aurora, was waiting for him. He still had 45 kilometers to go, but now he had food and more hope than ever before. That's incredible. And it just shows how much these guys were there for each other. Yeah. They knew that whatever was happening out there wasn't good, that he would need the supplies based on how long he was gone for. So these, these supplies are what allows him to, to make it through another so many days. They went out there and they they dropped it for him in certain spots, kind of like the Easter Bunny or something, you know. Like uh, that is so cool that that they would that they would do, and it worked. And there's a note on it telling him what day it is, what time it is. Uh, it's just so amazing that he came across this. Yeah, and if you know something was just left hours before, and then you even <laughs> have the information about your ship waiting. Yeah. Man, that must have reinvigorated him in a way we can't even describe. Oh man, for sure. When he was nearing the camp, a blizzard hit and he sought shelter in a cave. 
Mawson lost a week. But the plentiful supplies and the shelter saw him through. Upon arrival to the camp, he could make out the aurora on the horizon as it sailed away. A bolt of dread runs through Mawson. Is he looking at the ship that had come to take the remaining men away? Was he left alone? But there's soon good news as six men had stayed at the camp to wait for him. And a few run up to Mawson as he approaches. They are overjoyed to see him, but because he's so emaciated, they can't tell which of the missing party he is. But soon they're celebrating the return of their fearless leader in Douglas Mawson, while of course mourning the loss of Xavier Mertz and Belgrave Ninnis. The telegraph is soon used to inform the ship of Mawson's return, but it's too late for the Aurora to change its course. Unbelievable, dude. I mean, so many crazy things going on here. That is so brutal. Like, he, he just... <laughs> I wonder if he found a laugh in him at this news. How ridiculous to have survived what he had, traveled such distance, without much hope in the end to make it back to base. And in the end, like missing a bus, he actually sees the ship leaving. I mean, to be clear, what's humorous about this is that he wasn't trying to catch the ship. He was just trying to survive, obviously. But he misses the ship that could take him back home by five hours. That's a cruel joke. Maybe one played by his lost pals and Mertz and Ninnis. Known jokers, by the way. That thought, I had to have crossed his mind. I mean, you're out there, they're superstitious people. You survive all this, Aaron. And it's like, you just, you just got to laugh to keep from crying. Well, these seven men stayed at the camp through the winter and continued their work, even finding the first meteorites in Antarctica. The discoveries and findings they made were shared via telegraph during their remaining time there. Yeah, they make the best of it. Mawson always made the best of it. Uh, he's able to speak through radio with his fiance. They had been successful at establishing radio contact between Antarctica and Australia, one of the initial goals. Unfortunately, Aaron, the radio operator, Sidney Jeffries, goes insane during this stretch. He is the one who fully understands how to use and maintain the radio connections. Over the winter, Jeffries accuses the other six men of conspiring to kill him. And Jeffries himself openly conspires to kill the others. There is much tension during this second winter. Jeffries is tied up and watched day and night. Yeah, it's like something out of The Thing. I'm sure you've seen that movie. Yeah, I have. Yes, it's like that. And you can understand the madness, too, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A harrowing experience becomes somehow even more so, but they get through it. Counting down for 100 days together, when that mark comes in the dead of Antarctic winter. Five hours late, Mawson had arrived five hours too late for rescue, and now he's recovering in the midst of this madness, forced to spend a second winter at base camp. He finally returned home to Australia on February 26, 1914. One of the first orders of business was a wedding. He and his dear fiance, Bukita, whose photo had gotten him through much of his mental struggle while marooned, got married and would end up having two daughters. The Royal Geographic Society awarded him the Founders Gold Medal in 1915 for the encouragement and promotion of geographical science and discovery. He also wrote a book about his ordeal that same year titled The Home of the Blizzard, which is a book I would heartily recommend. I swear, when you read through what he went through with this adventure, with this expedition, with the men, with the dogs, with his love back home. This is something that very few people have experienced. 
But yet, Mawson returned to the Antarctic twice more in 1929-1930 and 1930-1931 as leader of the British, Australian, and New Zealand Antarctic Research Expedition, concentrating on oceanography, Antarctic and sub-Antarctic marine biology, and Antarctic coastal exploration to the west of the Shackleton Ice Shelf. Douglas Mawson continued as a professor, a family man, and a conservationist, he and his wife, Paquita, being well-respected and loved by all who knew them. Great stuff, Ben. And you know, as hard as we both worked on this episode, and as much as we spoke about it and, uh, as ingrained in, in the idea of all of it that we got, we, we barely touched what the reality of all this is. I mean, this was extreme. Incredible that he was able to survive this situation. Um, it can't be overstated how dire that situation was when he fell into that crevasse and had to climb himself out. After, he was exhausted. Both of his friends had died. It's like, this is my time too. And he survived through that. We did our best, Aaron, didn't we? And uh, I, I think I'll continue to be fascinated by this as time goes on. I, I only read about half of that book, kind of glanced through it because we move on with Maroon. But I, I'm going to sit down and enjoy that book. Um, in time. I also have to say, Paquita was one of the reasons he kept going because when your body's giving out, when your skin is coming off, it's easy to say, I can't take another minute of this. But he loved Paquita and he wanted to get back to her. But he not only that, but he also wanted to tell the stories of his fellow men, of Mertz and Ninnis. And that was that was for me just a reflection of how much respect he had for them and that he didn't want them just to have died and disappeared. He wanted to go back and talk about them, about their bravery and about how they helped this expedition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Um, this one was a little bit different from the, from the others that we're going to cover and that he wasn't alone. He wasn't marooned entirely until, you know, Actually, he was quite marooned at the end, but there was a long period there where he had people with him. I just can't imagine the mental strength, the physical strength it would take, um, spiritual strength to go on after losing those two. He was depending on those guys. Here's the thing, though. He was depending on them for, and I don't want to seem crass here or, or ignorant about it, but he was depending on them for the expedition. Once they were gone, there's a bit of a byproduct there where it's like, I only have to worry about myself. And like you said, I have to worry about surviving so I can tell their stories. And he was able to achieve it. I mean, I could spend days talking about or imagining what it was like for him uh, just making it back. He spent a week in that shelter after he in that cave after he had found the supplies. He spent a week there. And in a story like this, we only have the luxury of just kind of glancing past that. But a week on top of all this, <laughs> like right near the very end in a blizzard. My God, man, uh, just an incredible story. Y'all I can say is I don't know that I could do what Mawson did or any of these no. men did because I just imagined being out there in that frozen wasteland and knowing that you have Mertz ahead looking for crevasses or possible crevasses so you can avoid the dangers. But hearing just the cracking and breaking of structures randomly. And you can't tell where that's happening. Yeah. It had to be haunting. <sighs> Absolutely. And something we didn't go too far on there either. Like when Ninnis fell through, I have to say that's probably one of my greatest fears. People like to talk about, you know, what's your greatest fear in dying? It could be drowning, it could be fire, it could be 
um, whatever, right? But falling into a crevasse and maybe just going forever, I guess the hope would be that he hit his head on the way down and he died instantly. But what if he didn't, Aaron? What if, like, he slipped down and he was, like, on a slide and eventually he just got stuck? And I, I'm certain that's probably happened before. Um, and there are going to be stories going forward where we talk about this, where people just get stuck in certain situations, become marooned in that way. That is an absolute nightmare. <laughs> You're in like this ice under realm, freezing to death over a period of time. And there's no chance that anyone can come to save you. Not only that, but what if he had just been knocked out for several hours? Right, right. But they couldn't reach him. Uh Oh my God. And you wake up and your body's broken and you're in extreme pain and, and you're stuck. I mean, what is the hope? There's no hope. And they're doing things that people hadn't really done before. That's the other problem here. They're not using prior knowledge, prior experience. Not really. I mean, in fact, Ninnis had fallen into a crevasse previously, but had caught himself and they helped pull him out. So I wanted to go back and talk about their plan to have Ninnis with the best dogs and the best equipment in the back. So the idea was that first Mertz, then Mawson would traverse this territory that was checked out by Mertz. And so by the time that Ninnis was traversing over the same ground, that he would, in theory, be safe. But that wasn't really the truth, because no matter how well you plan, there are different weights at play here, and changing conditions that could change in a moment. So they did what they thought was best, but when Ninnis, when Ninnis fell through the, into the crevasse with the dogs, with their supplies, that was a huge blow. Aaron, I don't know if you're going to get to this again. I don't know if we even really mentioned it, but uh, Ninnis had a habit of running alongside the sledge, Right. So he was running alongside his sledge, which um, was dispersed his weight in a way that was detrimental to him. So uh, Mawson was riding the back of his sledge, but Ninnis was running alongside, and that's why he went through at the back. He hit a pocket, and his weight was dispersed inappropriately for the situation, and he died as a result. He loved those dogs. I mean, he was running with the dogs, breathing crazy fresh air enjoying the adventure and he just boom disappears and he's the one they're trying to protect not just because it's ninnis and he's the youngest and they care for him they care about each other all equally but ninnis had the 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 greatest amount of their supplies on his because they thought he would be safest in the rear tragedy so douglas mawson who later became sir douglas mawson he later died in 1958 and Lady Mawson, his wife, she was every bit as loved as he was. And I remember when I was reading about her, she had planned to write a book about her husband. And there was a question, why was she the one writing it? And she made no bones about it. She said, I'm not the best person to write a book, but that was her task. She wanted to write the book because that's what her husband wanted. He wanted her to tell his story. So she took that on and got it done. And to me, 
when you read about their history together, there's a lot of love. There's a lot of patience because imagine falling in love with someone and then they're telling you, by the way, in, you know, during the next five, 10, 15 years, I'm going to be leaving a lot for a stretch of land where I could die very easily. <laughs> and what a testament to their relationship. It's unsaid there, but that she could, she could tell you about everything he'd been through. It's a testament because they must have sat and talked and he shared with her, right? And they do. They talk about how close the relationship was. For her to be able to recount what he had been through obviously leads us to to imagine them sitting by candlelight, you know, at night and him regaling the tales and the tough times that he went through. Um, she was able to to share that with everybody. I think it's very uh, romantic. Yeah, she raised their children and really to talk about her strengths, they said she was great at public speaking. And so she would talk whether with some of his, you know, remaining contemporaries or with people who wanted to hear the stories, she would talk about their life, about his adventures, and people would be captivated. Yeah, as we were, as we were. Well, that's another episode of Marooned. <clears throat> And uh, I guess we'll see you next time. For now, Aaron and I got to check out. Well, blow that candle out, Aaron, and good night to you. Good night, Jack. Whew.